This is the No Dogma Podcast. I am Brian Hogan, and this evening I'm joined by Eric Schles, Technology Advisor for Demand Abolition. Thanks for joining me, Eric. Thanks for having me. Can you, um, can you tell me sorry. a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I am a researcher um, and computer scientist, and I do data science things, and I work for Demand Abolition. Uh, just a quick description of what they do. They're a anti-trafficking organization that works at the national Sorry, level. When you say so trafficking, work, you're talking human trafficking. Here. I'm talking human trafficking. Thank you for <laughs> not traffic signs. Uh, <laughs> so an anti-human trafficking organization that works at the national level. Uh, they have collaborations across many local institutions, um, and they're also part of a number of policy conversations. Uh, and the intention is to uh, get law enforcement or give law enforcement the ability to uh, work on human trafficking via either uh, stopping human trafficking either via uh, funding sources or um, you know uh, tools or um, some something some some way of essentially allowing them to work on this because it's not always easy. There's some barriers to entry. Where is uh, land ablation based? So they're based in Boston, uh, in Cambridge, um, but they there's a lot of flying around. <laughs> um, so they work in. Um, the West Coast, Seattle, and Portland. Um, there's some people in California, I believe, and then there's um, some folks in Texas that we work with. Uh, Boston Police Department, um, New York, sort of, um, and then a few other places. And Chicago is another really big name uh, place that, that that we have collaborations with. I met you initially some months ago at a conference in Boston where you were telling me a little bit about how you got into human trafficking. Could you tell that story, please? Sure. So um, this is a very personal story for me, um, as I imagine it would be for anyone in my field. Um, so I uh, first uh, became aware of slavery uh, in its current form uh, back when I was 12. I saw a man in a small village um, in India um, I was there on a family vacation with my parents, and he had a metal collar around his neck, uh, and he was a slave in the truest sense of the word. Um, it sort of broke me a little bit. <laughs> it was not, it was not a particularly fun moment, and but it sort of opened my eyes to a much larger perspective on the world and showed me that there's a lot of things that are wrong, and and it took me a long time to internalize, but eventually I was able to come around. And I thought, this is what I need to do. Um, and I've just been working towards making sure that there's never a moment like that in anyone else's life ever again uh, since. Um, so in order to prepare myself for a career in fighting slavery, which didn't really exist and there were no paths forward, I uh, went into economics and then uh, thought I would be a professor. Did not academics Academia didn't let me get on the ground enough. Um, so I switched gears and moved into computer science, exited a master's at NYU, and then uh, started working for uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in their human trafficking response unit. Um, and I've been doing that for the past year. Uh, and now now I'm working for the demand abolition cause, so I could be part of the national conversation. But does it get a date on this? Uh, how many years ago was it that you saw this gentleman with the, the collar? Right, so I'm 29, so 17 years ago, and this has been my life mission since then. <laughs> and you would say this is ongoing, this wasn't 
it hasn't stopped since then, I, I, I imagine. Well, there's been spits and starts a little bit. I, I want to be faithful and honest here. Um, you know, it definitely took me a couple of years to kind of wrap my head around it. But yeah, more or less, this has been the thing that's been driving me for most of my adult life. So let's talk a little bit about your time at the DA. Uh, when, when did you join? Maybe how long were you there? Yeah, so um, I started there in 2014, in October of 2014, and I did it until um, end of July. Sorry, wait, this was New York, am I right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, sorry. sorry. The Just Manhattan District Attorney's Office, yes. The New York uh, Manhattan DA's office. So there are five DA's offices in New York City. I worked in the Manhattan one. Um, um, yeah, and so I worked for them for a year uh, in their Human Trafficking Response Unit, which was a ton of... A ton of fun. Um, I, you know, got to work with a lot of people that were like-minded, that understood the issue at the depth uh, that I understood it, were passionate about it, would work, you know, many more hours than they had to. There was a lot of overtime in our unit, um, and it's usually frowned upon in like sort of uh, government settings. But you know, we were all just very passionate about what we were working on, and so uh, it sort of naturally got reflected <laughs> in how many hours we spent at the office. What would you kind of so I, I I think most of the people who listen to this work in the tech field in some sort, either a company with a tech department or in tech companies. But what's it like working in something like a district attorney's office for technology? Yeah, so it's completely different than a technology office. Uh, so lawyers are your bosses, <laughs> first that of all. That can't be good. <laughs> no, it cannot be, <laughs> and they don't really know how technology works. So. Um, there were a few innovations over the last 40 years in technology, like, you know, the ability to search, uh, the ability to store large amounts of data, uh, the ability to um, sort of understand larger pictures, to do things on the Internet, uh, to use distributed services like web services and things. None of this existed uh, in the DA's office. They didn't know what RESTful connections were, more or less, when I came in the door. Um, so I spent the last year mostly... Uh, doing a lot of data transformation, which was a huge lift, but uh, they had like something like 10 million PDFs on all of these different human trafficking cases that they were working, and they had no way to search across them or get any information out of them, or, you know, like things that should have taken seconds took days or months. Um, and so the biggest con uh, contribution I did was sort of bring them into the 21st century and was like, okay. These are databases, guys. You're going to be friends. <laughs> oh, they weren't even. Oh dear. Yeah. So, so there was a notion of a database at the DA's office. Um, many, many places around the country don't even have the idea of a database. They still use paper filing systems, um, which is a huge problem in law enforcement. So, technologists out there, please, please, just like you know, even a month of your time is worth decades to them and i'm not kidding when i say that like that's that's sort of a literal translation <laughs> in terms it's of such search. a strange idea given that you know all the other things we hear based on the various releases by the likes of snowden about the incredible technology that's being used in other parts of government right absolutely like far so beyond what's commercially available absolutely so folks at places like nsa are always and have always been ahead of the curve but you know when you get to the local law enforcement level these are people that are typically the lawyers have college educations and like law degrees or whatever but you know they're accepting lower salary levels they're not 
so that means they have smaller budgets. They can't get trained on technology, and the, the industry moves very, very fast uh, by by conventional standards. And I think law enforcement has had trouble keeping up with this in a lot of ways. Um, so, so I shouldn't say that there aren't any databases at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. There are, but their feeds coming in from other places. Everything we have internally is stored in file systems. So, so that was so. So convincing them that that having our own data in databases was was the probably the biggest fight of my life. <laughs> so How was the resistance? What, what's um, the argument against it? They don't know SQL, and just they. Change. Yeah, it's changed. It's changed. It's like we don't know this, so we don't want to learn it. Um, and I mean, that being said, uh, the current DA has really tried to change the culture around there. Um, it's a lot of actually the biggest points of resistance were from the IT department, which is ironic or weird. It doesn't make any sense because you're like the IT department. Of course, they're going to be like the people who want this, but they were throwing up all kinds of barriers. I think part of the problem was they weren't educated on this and they knew they had to be so they had to own it at the end of the day and they were uncomfortable owning this sort of thing um but also there was hesitance from the lawyers you know some of them still use typewriters let's let's like be clear it's, not, it's everyone's fault <laughs> no one's no one's playing yeah. this here uh but you know i was able to take human trafficking's data and take it out of pdfs and put it in excel documents and put it in uh eventually to databases and to have it visualized in a way that was meaningful and do time series and all these under wonderful things that allowed us to process and prosecute cases much, much faster. Um, I would say all told, uh, my data transformation, uh, sort of techniques and things probably saved maybe three to 500,000 hours a year, uh, because it was someone's job to take the PDFs and manually type in the information that was important and put it in a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet that then lived Still in a file system, <laughs> literally didn't understand. Oh, it was it was uh, it was a struggle. But you know, uh, we got databases and we moved things away from spreadsheets and we stopped the data entry. Um, you know, it was, it was, yeah. So when you had managed to move the information into the database, um, mm -hmm. were you able to run various statistical models on this or? Yeah, what was the so, benefit of, of, of having it right, all right, 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 right. So search was the biggest benefit. Um, being able to search across the data and find connections automatically, being able to uh, do link analysis between different entries, be like, okay, so this person is now part of this investigation. They were originally uh, segmented over here, and we didn't realize that there were connections between this guy and this guy. Being able to draw those connections was really the biggest benefit. Um, Unfortunately, prediction was not something I was allowed to do. Lawyers are very uncomfortable with anyone using past cases um, to do future sort of analysis. Um, it's it's a very statistical economics sort of thing, or I don't know, social science generally. And they they lawyers are typically uncomfortable with math. That's the long story short. And so. I think there was, um, I mean, that being said, there was some prediction modeling that happened outside of the unit, but. Um, uh, so, okay, so I will say that although I wasn't able to work on that there, uh, and we'll talk about this soon, uh, I am doing some work on prediction now. So so it's going to happen. It's it's going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. well, sorry, that sounds like a great transition. So the, the next thing we're going to talk about was your role at the, sorry, is your role at Demand Abolition. Okay, okay, great, great, great. So, yeah, so we'll talk about that now then. Um, so at Demand Abolition, uh, they do as much policy work as they do sort of tactical things. Um, and special projects and other stuff like this. So um, the current work I'm doing now 
uh, is okay. So there's, there's an open source project I'm working on, and I will copy paste it into the little slide thing here. So okay. this way, and I'll add you, it to the, uh, the blog yeah, post. The yeah, yeah, you can you can you can add it. Um, so. Uh, this is the beginnings of a tool. I, I want to be clear on that. It's not done yet. It's very much not done yet. Um, but what this does is it it looks for... Con All right. So to understand what this tool does, we have to sort of step back and ask the question, what is human trafficking and how does it happen? So there are three major kinds. There is sex trafficking, there is labor trafficking, and then there is sex, child sex trafficking. And this classification between sex trafficking and child sex trafficking is important because it happens in different ways. Um, sometimes folks that are unfortunately victims of sex trafficking as children end up having that be a staple of their lives uh, for the rest of it. And that's horrible. But typically it takes a lot more effort to do this to a five-year-old than it does to a 14 or 15-year-old. Um, which is typically the age of, and there is a lot of variance here. I want to be clear on that, uh, but it's typically the age for, for folks that are um, sex trafficked, sort of more generally speaking. Technically, they're still minors at 15, but uh, child sex trafficking typically refers to someone around seven or eight. Um, so this is a lot of the pedophilia cases and things of this nature, which is horrible, and I I, I can't talk about in detail because it just makes me cry. Uh, I don't want to do that <laughs> on, on this podcast, unfortunately. Um, so, so anyway, um, uh, so I, the DA's office primarily focused on on sex trafficking and understanding that um, the long term intention of this tool is is to address sex trafficking. Uh, labor trafficking is hugely important, and it's something I want to touch on later on in my career. But there's a lot of force behind sex trafficking right now and bringing that to either really reducing or bringing it to a close. And so I want to focus my efforts there. Um, but, you know, sort of strike where the iron's hot and there's other people who can be collaborators and it is a terrible problem. Both are terrible problems. Anyway, so let's, 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 let's keep this sort of high level view. So someone becomes trafficked, uh, not overnight. It's a lot of contributing factors. So, um, education level, how many friends you had growing up, um, how many friends you have presently, your, your, your socioeconomic status, so how wealthy you are. All of these are contributing factors. Where you live is a contributing factor. You're more likely to be trafficked if you live in certain areas versus other areas just because there are more traffickers around. Um, the way someone becomes sex trafficked typically is either a, a much older man, a much older gentleman typically, or older woman will uh, enter a romantic relationship. Um, so this is one of a few ways. Um, will enter a romantic relationship with a much younger teenager, convince them to essentially fall in love with this much older person, and then sort of begin the worst guilt trip possible. Sort of, I need help. I need money. You need to work uh, to support our family. Um, and they'll use it in those terms. There's a very familial setting between traffickers and trafficked people, which is really creepy and weird and terrible. Um, and then they'll sort of convince them to prostitute themselves for money, keep all the profits. And then when they realize what's happening, then they'll start doing physical abuse. And then that gets severe. Um, they won't beat them a lot, but they'll beat them um, 
in a very like they'll beat them a lot. Um, we don't have to so go the, into too much detail. Uh, let's try to get back more towards the technology side of it. Okay, sure. Mind. Yes, please, please, please. Yes. No. So, I, 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 sorry, sorry. So, so, so. Okay. So, all of this is to say, there are contributing factors, and there is a story here, and the story is the same for a lot of these individuals. So, if we can understand in detail which levers, um, which policy levers are available to us that will allow us to alleviate or reduce the amount of, of trafficking um, to the highest, you know, sort of if we up education, how much is trafficking going to fall? Like education investment. If we up services for homeless people, how much is trafficking going to fall? And being able to say those discrete policy things is the intention of this tool. So how is it happening? It's a lot of web scraping. Right, so pulling in public data sources, things we can monitor, looking at indexes, looking at different indicators of wealth and poverty, because essentially slavery is really just the most extreme version of income inequality. That's really what it is. It's your standard of living is as low as possible, someone else's standard of living is as high as possible. And so by looking at how someone ends up in this sort of really terrible downward spiral um, through time series analysis, through leading and lagging variables, uh, through a whole bunch of prediction models, specifically, um, I'm going to probably look at ARIMA models, and I'm probably going to look at some clustering analysis, and then there'll be some geospatial stuff as well. Um, so we're understanding the locations and areas where these people are coming from. So um, speaking to specific technologies that I'm interested in or I believe will be valuable for this project, um, for ARIMA models, I believe I'm using stats models. Um I have it here. Just give me one second oh, for that. No um, so if I'm, yeah. trying, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that you're looking at the statistics of where people who are ending up in slavery are coming from, then you're yep. looking at the environmental and political and social yep. factors, yep. and then you're using that data to try to, let's say, drive policy, policy decisions for education or services yep. or safety or something in areas where where people would be vulnerable and you will try to maybe prevent that vulnerability from occurring. Is that yep. kind of the goal? That is literally what I'm trying to do. Okay. Um, and no one's asked this question yet of how do we look at the contributing factors? They've been very good about attacking the issue um, and trying to get as many people out as possible. We're not looking at the systemic factors. And this is what I've noticed from the people. Oh, so it's a reaction for people that are already in, uh, yes. in, in slavery rather yes. than trying to deal with the underlying causes. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think there's something valuable in that. It certainly feels good freeing people. Um, you know, there's nothing there's nothing against those people. They're doing wonderful, amazing work. But until we start to address the systemic issues that are underlying societal forces that have led to this natural progression, we're never going to make a true difference. And I think it's important to be tactical, but if you're not being strategic at least a little bit, things are going to fall short. Now, fortunately... Um, I am going to be in a position, or I am in a position in this current role to do some policy work uh, with demand abolition. So what they do is they try to influence the policy, educate uh, the policy sort of conversation. But I'm going to be starting a new role um, in a few weeks. Uh, I'm going to stay on as an advisor for demand abolition, but I'm going to be starting a new role um, uh, with the U.S. Digital Service, which is a new agency within the federal government, um, and it was started off by uh, President Obama. Um, and a few other folks, um, uh, primarily the first CTO of America, Todd Park, and now I think it's being run by Todd Park, um, and then Megan Smith, the current CTO of America, is sort of overseeing that. Um, I 
don't remember where Todd comes from, but Megan Smith comes from Google X, uh, and she was like an exec there. Um, and so hopefully there'll be an opportunity to extend this policy tool into the federal government and start using it in places like DOJ, state departments, and maybe a few other places that have some uh, conversational elements with uh, talk to. I don't know. I'm trying to be highfalutin. That talk to uh, talk to law enforcement folks. To wind back a tiny bit, we talked yeah. a lot about the data, but you know the various aspects of the, the socioeconomic makeup, the statistics. But where does all that information come from initially? Oh yes, so that's really good question. Um, so the whole reason why human trafficking and specifically sex trafficking is such a big deal these days is because of the internet. Uh, the internet has made it really, really easy for sex trafficking to happen, unfortunately. Um, you can post an ad and then an hour later, uh, you know, you can be making money. Not to say that it's a good business, it's not. Um, but because of the ease of this, uh, folks have very low barriers to entry. Um, and websites like Backpage, formerly Craigslist, they've done a great job of cleaning up their act, but for a while Craigslist was a pretty bad place for this. Um, and then there's a whole host of other websites that makes sex trafficking extremely easy. Also legitimate, not legitimate, legal, well, no, prostitution is legal. So uh, prostitution that doesn't have a human trafficking element. So it's, but, um, so the hard part, the challenge of all of this data is being able to tease out what's human trafficking and what's just regular prostitution. Because most people don't really care about, I mean, at least most people in the human trafficking space, the anti-human trafficking space, do not care about regular prostitution. They care about human trafficking, um, and it's a very important distinction. So uh, when you're in law enforcement, though, you have added information that uh, someone like your average data scientist wouldn't have. But once you know what that information is, it's easy to build tools around that and then just hand to law enforcement, and they can do the analysis and run your jobs for you. So the way it works is, um, or at least the way we worked in the Manhattan District Attorney's offices, we would get a case in, and there would be an element of prostitution, but there would also be an element of violence. So this is this sort of ties into what I was talking about before about how uh, there would be, you know, we would know that there there, there were sex trafficked essentially because there was there was physical violence involved. So essentially, what what I'm saying is uh, there would be a domestic violence aspect to to the the arrest. Uh, someone would, would either, you know, they would either come to the hospital or, or someone, the police were called in some capacity. So we know that there's violence. And then what, the, what, what a lot of my tools did was uh, find prostitution ads when a domestic violence case came in. So if a DV case happened, domestic violence case happened, we would look for prostitution ads. We found those. We'd be like, okay, we think this is trafficking because this fits the pattern. Then we would go out, collect all the information we could open source. Um, so this meant downloading the back page ad, doing a whole bunch of uh, subpoena stuff, which basically meant going out to different legal entities and um, companies and getting all the information we could, and then doing network analysis. So social network analysis, linking into Facebook and Twitter and other places like this, figuring out what we could get about this person, and then being able to say, is there a pattern here? Um, and there are really obvious indicators, like uh, if the person has many phone numbers, why would you need 17 different phone numbers? Well, it's because you're you're doing this, you know? And it's like, oh, look, he's been arrested for domestic violence 27 times in the last four years. That's weird. Probably worth looking into further. So, you know, sort of understanding how the 
these things are happening is pretty easy once you get a look at the data. So what I've done is the same thing that they've been doing, except I made it really easy to get that analysis in like a minute or two minutes. And that's what saved all the time when I was working at the DA's office. And um, a lot of the tools that I have and have been build, have built and have been building um, uh, are, demand abolition are sort of the same idea. It's about taking that process that we sort of perfected the DA's office in Manhattan and passing it off to other DA's offices around the country. Um, some stuff still hasn't gone to production, but hopefully it will before I move on to um, a main role of the US Digital Service. So when you were saying that you, you reach out to look at the like sort of Twitter, or the Facebooks, the back pages yeah. uh, based on a suspicion, is all that happening relatively automatically or does it require a lot of person, uh, manual intervention? So it did when I started. It does not now. Okay. Um, that's partially because of me. Also, uh, I should say that there's a tool that is being developed by DARPA, which we got to use at the DA's office called Memex. The Memex tool set, which I can post here. Um, That's fine. So the, you can tell me later. Okay, okay. No sure, 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 sure. Sorry, sorry. So the Memex tool set um, does web scraping on steroids. They scrape the deep web. They um, sorry, When you say deep them. web, what do you mean by deep web? Yeah, so I mean um, places that you can only get to by the Tor network. Okay. Um, so, so like... Uh, this is .onion websites, uh, places that you couldn't get to with a normal web browser. Um, so uh, they scrape everything, and they did a lot of the instrumentation and automation, um, so they deserve most of the credit there. What I did was primarily um, pull out extra information, um, sometimes that they would be missing, but also for my own experiments, experimental sort of needs. So um, the most salient information from a back page post is typically the pictures, and the phone numbers. If you can get at those two pieces of information, you can do a lot. And they certainly work on this as well, but um, you know, I had the advantage of being a little bit more nimble, partially because I've been thinking about this problem longer than a lot of the DARPA folks have, but partially because I'm not as constrained by um, other forces, which will remain nameless. Um, and so... Uh, with with all that in mind, I was able to think of some innovative things. So, for instance, um, one of the novel things that I was able to come up with was looking at pictures of homeless people and comparing those with pictures uh, back page ads. And by saying, okay, so you're probably in a bad situation and you're on back page, um, huh? And then I could, you know, I sort of created a face comparison thing, and it would it would compare these two faces, and if there was a match. There's a reason to believe that human trafficking is involved. When you say a picture of a homeless person, where would something like that come from, though? So NECMEC, the National Never heard uh, Exploited Children something. I don't remember. Okay, so it's some database that the government's yes. providing of, yes. of missing people. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Then there's, and there's also FBI missing people. Also in New York City, there's local missing people things. So, you know, um, being in a, le- a law institution or a, a law enforcement institution, there's lots of opportunities to sort of get at this data. And it, unfortunately, I haven't gotten to – I didn't get to put it into production before I left the DA's office, but it is my intention to, to finish that tool and see it launched and hopefully get some good results out of it. But – Based on research, anecdotal mostly, unfortunately, but uh, interviews with former people who are trafficked, homelessness is a common thread in almost every single case that we found. And I think that's powerful. 
that's persuasive enough for it to be reason to believe that there's a connection there. And I think it makes intuitive sense as well. You know, we're not, we're not sort of discovering the universe. This is stuff in front of our eyes. And just from a sort of um, a very tech perspective, when you were doing this sort of work, uh, what are the tools or programming languages that you're primarily using? Yeah, so I really like Python. It's my favorite. Um, <laughs> I use Python a lot. Used a lot of web scraping. So requests, the request library was a big fan of me for me. A uh, big, big uh, thing I like to use a lot. Um, Scikit-Learn, absolutely use that quite a bit uh, for their natural language processing stuff. Uh, use support vector machines to do document similarity. One of the things I got to put into production before I left the DA's office was um, we had like a a query system. Against so all the cases, this is one of the few databases they had at the DA's office. There was um, this this uh, case logger, and it would it would tell us in with certain flags. It would tell us if if it met our criteria. Now the flags they had set up were terrible. Uh, basically, I I took a bunch of known cases that we knew had a human trafficking element that we've been investigating, and then um, I used Scikit-Learn's SVM to compare that with new entries that were coming in. So instead of doing keyword search against like 5,000 database queries, uh, I got it down to a filter of 200. So that saves a ton of time. And so that was a really, really big win for the, for the, for us because it meant that the analysts had to spend a lot less time looking at new cases as they would come in and a lot more time analyzing and sort of getting at the directed cases. Um, so, I love Scikit-Learn. They have some great implementations. Let me think of other things really quickly. Oh, OpenCV was a really big one for me um, for doing the uh, sort of image similarity analysis. That was that was really important for that. And then um, Flask to set up web interfaces because we needed things that would be you could put up in a second. Like you got to be able to put something up the next day because there was a case coming through and you needed some new analysis or something. Yeah. You know, so just being able to put stuff up on the web really, really fast with internal servers was really important. And if I had time to really make it, you know, sort of like a framework type thing, then I probably would have used Django. But yeah, Flask really met my needs very well. Um, so those were those pretty much my stack. And then, you know, C3, D3, and Vincent were my database things. Um, and they were pretty robust tools. I, I enjoyed all of them. Um, yeah, yeah. So then when you were at, let's say, at the DA, what came first? Was it the case or the data? Uh, so a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um, typically, though, you need a certain amount of data in order to to start using it to build cases, right? So you can't just go in and sort of do unsupervised machine learning and you're going to find all the human trafficking cases on the internet. If that was the case, which I wish it was, then, you know, I could go home and I could just be like a, like a finance guy or something and make lots of money. <laughs> uh, I don't know, whatever. Um, so sadly that's not the case. Uh, um, so you typically needed some critical mass. Now, by the time the end of my my tenure, we were getting pretty close to being able to identify cases automatically, which was really really cool. I wish I wish every DA's office in the country could do that. Um, if they could get to the point where they had enough of enough current data. So um, one of the challenges of working for the DA's office is when a case finishes, it gets closed. So that means that that data goes away. You can't use it anymore. 
when a case is closed, yeah, yeah, the data goes away. Legally can't be used. Legally can't be used. It's Uh, it's sealed. It's sealed. Yeah. So so I can't use it for anything. Even if I anonymize it, even if I anonymize everything pertinent with names and dates and faces, it's closed. I can't I can't touch it. It's legally no longer open. So unless the DA, the assistant district attorney, like the lawyer who processed the case, remembers a name from a previous case, there is no way to search for that data anymore. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of shocking. It's kind of shocking. I presume there is some um, good reason for it. Um, it's sort of like innocent until proven guilty. So just because you were convicted of a crime and you actually committed a crime in the past doesn't mean you committed it this time. No, that's, um, that's fair enough. That's, that's understandable. Or maybe right, because yeah. you were suspected of something doesn't mean that you should be right. again investigated just because your pattern matches something that was incorrect a year ago right. and two years ago and three years right. ago. Right, exactly. It's about justice for the people. And I think it's a great rule overall. But I think it's insane to throw away all of the metadata about that case. Like, you know, I don't need to know someone's name to know that they were 29 and that they were male and that they, uh, you know, had like done the things that happened during the course of the case. Like, there's a lot of salient information you could use to do a lot of really great prediction, and we're just throwing it all away. And so it's, it was a little frustrating. It's one of the one of the big reasons I left. Honestly, I, I wanted to be able to do prediction. I was, I, I, it's important to be able to stop this, and you need every tool available. You know, you can't cut your legs out from under you when it's slavery. You can when it's something else, but you can't when it's slavery. And I, it's that's a personal belief in the you know, semantic arguments that can be had there. But yeah, anyway. But tell me, when I met you in Boston, I remember you um, describing, without too much detail, some successes that you had had. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So there were a lot of successes. Um, Like, I mean, I think I touched on a few of them already. So um, being able to uh, automate a ton of processes, being able to uh, make a lot of, uh, of mindset shift from, no, we can't use technology to technology can be your friend, um, was extremely powerful um you know one we literally had three analysts whose full-time job was data entry we took that i took that away in six months they don't have to do that ever again (laughs) um so you know being able to save something to the tune of 300 to 500,000 hours per tool like of, of man hours that you no longer have to pay someone for and being able to prosecute instead of four cases at a time, being able to prosecute 15, that I, I could, I would never ever be able to, I would never want that time back. I am glad that I was able to do that. I remember and, you telling me about a lady who had been rescued due to some of the research you had done, I think. Oh, shoot. you're right. I don't remember now what that. Oh no! Uh, you were very vague about it. You wouldn't see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no! It it was it was a long time ago at this point in my in my life. Um, That's okay. okay. We can so come the, back to it, maybe. So so, I I think I'm I think I I think I remember what you're talking what, what I was talking about then. There was a case that I did get to see happen and we were able to get her. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, um, rather than touching on that particular one, because I'm really still fogging on the details, I can talk 
sort of generally about some of the things we do. Is that sound reasonable? Okay, yeah, sure. in terms Just of, sort of field, what, okay, I guess what would be an example of yeah. a start, um, a middle, uh, a okay. court case, an outcome, a, a person being saved or something of that nature? Yeah, so, okay, I actually do remember now. I remember the case in detail. It came back to me, and I just took it. I just took it. So I'll take you through the process, and then I'll I'll finish with this story because it's a really it's very inspiring. Sounds I, good. Yeah. So okay. So um, typically we get a case in, right? I've sort of talked through a lot of those processes. We figure out some flag. We do some investigation. We arrest someone. Hooray! We have sworn investigators. They have arrest powers, and so we do it. This usually involves a sting or something else. Then it goes to trial. Then they freak out. Uh, the witness typically fr- freaks out. The victim freaks out. And then they recant their testimony, and that happens like about five or six times. Um, and so this process takes between two and five years. But a really awesome thing happened uh, while I was at the DA's office. And this is a thing that's like just – it doesn't happen that often, but it was, it was, it was so fucking awesome. Sorry to curse. Um, so uh, – I remember going walking into my boss's office one day and I had to talk to him about something that I've been working on. And, and so, okay. So it doesn't sound really glamorous, anything that I've done, right? It's like just turning documents into something that you can put into a database and search. So we were able to pick some, one of these women up and we were able to find her and we were able to use analysis to get her out of the situation she was in. And Sorry, when you say find her, you mean physically find her? Physically find her, yeah. You were able to get her out of the situation she was in. We were able to convince her that it was a bad thing for her to be in that situation. Um, you know, but like the horrible things that were happening to her were horrible because you have to do some convincing, which is crazy. It's, it's why mind-boggling what people can accept into their lives. Um, and it was listening to a voicemail, and the voicemail was from this woman, and she was saying – I'm going back to where I'm from, you know, thank you for working with me. Thank you to the, like the social social worker. Thank you to the social worker for convincing me and being part of this. You know, I'm going back to where I'm from. I'm not going to stay with this guy anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. You know, you guys helped me a lot to can, to show me that what was happening was messed up and that I didn't need to be in that situation. And that was just like the greatest moment ever. Cause like, it was like, Oh, while I was working here Partially, mostly because of the analysts involved, right? They did all of the hard work and the heavy lifting, but I was able to support them in such a way that they were able to get to that person fast enough to get them out of a bad situation before it became permanent. Uh, that was probably like greatest moment of my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think about it that often because I'm so focused on the negative. But yeah, that was. That was, that was, yeah. Now that I'm like remembering it in detail, it was like, that was like the greatest moment of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. So then not to put a downer on it or anything, but was there a follow-up then with a legal prosecution of the person that was keeping her? So our primary objective at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, is, and this is what I mean, why I'm working on this policy tool, was to free as many people as possible. Prosecuting a trafficker is a really hard thing. Okay take five to ten years to get a conviction and that also means dragging that person back to see the the person who enslaved them yes yeah yeah and that can be a really hard painful process and it's not something i really wish on anyone um having to look someone in the face i mean yeah justice gets done but having to look someone in the face who 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 enslaved you is 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 pretty traumatic um 
and that's the legal, that's the legal process, right? You got a testimony, you got to you got to testify, you got to do that. Uh, so, in her case, I think there might be some stuff, but I can't comment further because I don't honestly know oh, anymore. But um, yeah, I promise you that if it's possible to get that guy off the streets, then I. My friends at the DA's office are going to do it. <laughs> if there are some technologists listening, and I hope that there are, um, and they want to get involved somehow helping in this, what can they do? So there are a lot of things you can do if you're a technologist and you want to help. Um, the simplest thing and the lowest cost thing is be a mentor to someone. Um, there are so many kids around every community that honestly from low-income areas that would not end up being trafficked if they had someone who could guide them and show them that they have the potential to succeed so on a systemic level do that when you're <laughs> talking about low income. if you want to use your coding skills to help i have a number of open source collaborations not least of which is the tool that i talked about tonight the new thing that I'm working on. And I actually have collaborators already, which is kind of wonderful because I just started this like four weeks ago. <laughs> and I'll, I'll so, provide the link, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, uh, I'll probably move it over to its own repo. Anyway, okay, so I, so I don't. Um, so uh, there's that. Uh, volunteer with Demand Abolition. They, so because I'm taking on a new role and I'm going to have less time, they are going to need technologists, they're going to need help, and they do a lot of great work. There's also a lot of local national anti-trafficking organizations in every community pretty much around the United States, and they could all use your help. Um, you have to look up which ones they are, but I guarantee you they exist. There's also Datakind. Uh, they do a lot of open source data stuff. Um, there's also Data Driven, uh, which they spoke at the, the data, Open Data Science Conference, and they do a whole bunch of stuff for social good, and they have wonderful projects. Uh, one of the co-founders is a friend of mine, and they, they do great, great work. Uh, please, please help them if you can. Uh, they need it. Uh, well, they don't need it. They, they're, they're doing just fine, but, you know, it's, it's a good way to give back. Um, and then for those really aggressive, like, type A, they want to actually do something about this in a real way, join a local government institution and show them the change that I showed to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Show them that technologists can be used to make a difference. And, you know... It's a lot less money, but you feel so good coming home at the end of the day. Any final notes before we wrap up, Eric? Uh, I think that's about sums it up. Uh, so I'll just, I guess I'll just say thanks so much for having me on, for allowing me the vocal space to speak about something I'm so passionate about. Um, every time I get to talk about this, it honestly makes me feel like if I can reach one more person, you know, and he get more hands on deck, then we can bring an end to slavery forever. <laughs> and with that, thank you very much, Eric Schles. Thank you. Tearing me apart from the inside out so I can see myself from the inside. How long tearing me apart from the inside out so I can see myself from the inside? How long tearing you apart from the inside?
The opening music was The Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was O Love by Isla Nerio from the album Hollow Bone.